0: This podcast is sponsored by GOGO, the leader in in in-flight connectivity and wireless entertainment. Our superior technologies, best-in-class service, and global reach help planes fly smarter. Our partners perform better, and their passengers travel happier. Learn more at gogoair.com forward slash airline. I hate to be narcissistic, but let's start with a quote from our own publication about Delta's first quarter earnings report. Here's what we wrote. Q1, remember, is generally the weakest quarter of the year for U.S. carriers, a historically loss-making one, in fact. But Delta was able to profit heartily nonetheless. So in a nutshell, Delta earned hearty profits during its weakest quarter. Everybody heard that last week. So why am I starting the show with such an obvious point? The answer is because that quote was from last year's first quarter, not this year's. Last year, Delta earned a 9% profit margin, and everybody applauded. This year, the Q1 number was 18%. In Airline Weekly last week, we used the word phenomenal. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly, and joining me is the man who literally wrote the book on Delta, Seth Kaplan, our managing partner at Airline Weekly. We're going to talk about Delta's romp and its interest in the C-Series, Tap Portugal lost money, and we'll look at the global profitability rankings of airlines in 2015. It's all coming up on the Airline Weekly Lounge. So after I built up Delta's triumph in its Q1, let me tear into it, at least in one respect. Here's something else we wrote about last year's Q1. Quote, Indeed, an unhedged Delta would have had an unheard of 18% operating margin for the off-peak quarter. Two comments about that. With Delta indeed hitting 18% this year, obviously the unheard of is now heard of. And if you could isolate fuel, how similar is this year's Q1 to last year's Q1?
1: Well, more similar th- than it is without isolating fuel. Uh, look, in, in Q1 of, of uh, 2015, uh, Delta lost a billion dollars on, on bad hedges, which is why that 9% would have been 18%. Uh, this year, it lost a little over $100 million. That's a lot of money. But obviously, you can see there that that differential of a, you know $900 million in fewer hedge losses this, this year instead of last year. Explains a lot of the, the differential. So, uh, so yeah, excluding hedge losses, the two quarters weren't as different uh, as, as they would have been, you know, including them. But nonetheless, this year was by any measure better, uh, you know, and basically it was, you know, the story we've been talking about here for a number of months. Uh, you know, just, just that race to the bottom between falling fuel prices. That's the good part. Falling unit revenues. That's the bad part. Falling fuel prices. Still winning the race. The, the hedges don't explain everything. And, and indeed, this year would have been somewhat better without its hedge losses and you know, without the first quarter hedge losses this year, but not as dramatically better. It wouldn't have been a, you know, nine points higher this year as it would have been last year.
0: And let's talk about the falling revenues a bit. In the fourth quarter, uh, you and I were admiring Delta's, quote, relatively resilient revenues right on the show. And that's relative to United and American, of course. It appears that the resiliency for Delta, at least, continued in Q1 with just a 1% drop.
1: It did. Delta doesn't have some of the, the revenue pressures that those two airlines have. Uh, think about United. It, it, it has uh, its giant hub in Houston, uh, really the epicenter, at least among U.S. cities, of, of the oil bust. Uh, it's got a lot of exposure to Asia, the most among uh, the U.S. airlines. That's a place where revenues are, are under significant pressure. American. Its headquarters city, uh, Dallas Fort Worth. Uh, you know, its hub there also under pressure. Uh, I mean, you know, the oil industry is big there as well, albeit not as big as it is in Houston. But in Dallas, you've got Southwest across town. Uh, you know, growing well very successfully from Southwest's perspective at Dallas Love Field ever since it got the freedom to fly nonstop to anywhere in the U.S. There, DFW itself, the airport where American operates, uh, under pressure from from Spirit in particular. Spirit has finally stopped growing there, but. Uh, You know, American, a lot of pressure there. And, uh, you know, if you think Asia is a problem for United, uh, take a look at Latin America for American. At least certain economies there, you know, Brazil most notably, uh, you know, worse off than almost anything you could think of in Asia. And guess who's the biggest airlines in Latin America? American. Delta. You know, while certainly it has a, a fair amount of Asia exposure and certainly it has a, a fair amount of Latin America exposure, uh, you know, and certainly it deals with ultra low cost carriers and all the other kinds of pressures. It doesn't have any particular pockets of pain uh, that measure up to what I just described for United and American. So no surprise, Delta would be doing somewhat better. But, you know, it's, it's not just a matter of luck. Uh, I mean, you know, Delta is is running uh, the most reliable Giant airline in uh, well, probably not only the country but the world. Really impressive operational reliability. You know, its product has gotten a lot better. Customers like Delta. It, you know, it had a head start, certainly. I mean, its merger with Northwest was earlier than the mergers that United American went through, but it did a great job. A combination of 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 network exposure, you know, perhaps some of Delta's other natural advantages. Uh, you know, the fact that it runs a profitable maintenance business, which is able to do because of its you know, mostly non labor, non union rather labor force, and so forth. Some of those things. It's, uh, yeah, they're just also doing a, a a really good job operationally and and uh, and product wise.
0: Yeah, the network exposure is almost immaculate when you consider the Minnesota hub is doing well, the Salt Lake City hub is doing well, you know, they're, and of course, Atlanta. a lot of their international exposure is, uh, yeah, this is all outside of Atlanta. A lot of their international exposure is transatlantic, which is not a bad place to be. It's a remarkable run of luck and Luck, they say, is the residue of design. At any rate, uh, let's talk about how how important it is to be doing well in the first quarter. As we mentioned, last year's operating margin was 9%. The year before, 2014, that was 8%, still rather good. The year before that, 2013, it was 3.5%. In 2012, it drops to 3%, and it goes south from there. Yeah, not too many other years,
1: really, where, where they made any money at all in the first quarter. And that was long the story in the U.S. airline industry for most airlines. You've tried to run up the score in the summer, make a lot of money and just try not to give it all back in the winter. I mean, you almost took for granted that these were going to be loss making quarters, the fourth quarter and certainly the the first quarter for most airlines. Now, demand variability by season does, well, itself vary by region In, in Europe, airlines. Commonly, still lose money in, in the calendar first quarter, and that's harder to avoid. The demand just varies so much more uh, in, in Europe by season than it does uh, in the U.S. Delta was as aggressive as anybody about varying its network, you know, its schedule by season, and uh, really trying to match supply with demand. You know, we've talked about it before. It uh, you know, in the old days, pretty much everybody just accepted that you know, low season meant lower airfares. Delta, not only Delta, but certainly uh, as much as any other airline, figured out that well, you know, you you can get the same fares in February as, as you can get in July. You just have to fly a lot less to get them. You know, just just take supply out of your marketplace. They've they've done that very successfully and talked about you know running up the score in the se- summer. I guess uh, you know another athletic analogy I could use. You know, this is basically like imagine a race where uh, you know a runner gets to start 100 meters ahead of everybody else or a baseball player starting on on uh, first base rather than back at home plate. J- just a huge head start that when you put up numbers like Delta put up in the first quarter, absent a, you know, a black swan, if you will, just something totally unforeseen, pretty much guarantees you a, a rather good year with the best quarters, uh, traditionally anyway, still to come.
0: What do you expect from Delta regarding managing capacity going forward? Well, more of the same. I was just talking about the, uh, you know, trying to adjust supply Match it with
1: demand. You know they've they've indicated. Look, they're going to uh, take a look at the fall. If demand falls off, they'll make some more tactical adjustments. So you know that's that's what they do uh, nowadays. Now look, the analyst community has, has really been on these airlines about about not outstripping demand growth with their supply growth, because everybody understands that uh, look, fuel prices are are not going to continue falling forever. In fact, they indeed have have, have come significantly off their lows already. And, uh, you know, that whole race to the bottom we talked about earlier, guess what? If fuel stops falling and if uh, unit revenues continue falling, profits are are going to come under pressure. Uh, Really, it's about just getting the mix right. When you grow, your unit costs fall always without exception. When you grow, your unit revenues fall too. The difference is that when fuel is cheap... The economics are such that typically, uh, when you grow, your falling unit costs can outstrip the falling uh, unit revenues. It's because it becomes more of a fixed cost industry, and so you just become much more productive when you when you fly more. So very often, um, you know, there's that incentive to grow uh, when fuel is is cheap. You know, so so it's not as if they don't understand Delta and others that you know when you grow your unit revenues are going to be under pressure. They understand that they think that the level of growth that they have is tolerable. For those very impressive unit cost declines relative to you know what they see as as more modest use, modest rather unit revenue declines, yeah you know, the problem is obviously it's hard to get the mix exactly right. They're aware of that, you know I'm sure that if demand doesn't materialize in the way that Delta and others are expecting, then we'll see all of them make some, uh, you know probably not not a wholesale you know slashing and burning of, of uh, summer schedules or anything like that uh, or, or even fall schedules, you know but making some tactical moves to to try to uh, Get control again of the supply-demand balance.
0: It doesn't sound like it's a big deal either way. But would you say the refinery investment is working for Delta?
1: Really hard to say. I, I mean, I, I guess it's working in the sense that it's doing what it was supposed to do for them, which is you know, give them more control over over the supply chain. I mean, look, it's certainly not you know producing giant profits or anything uh, like that for them. But they always said it was what they saw as a rather modest investment. Um, you know, it did give them some exposure to potentially big losses. I mean, so it wasn't just the, the few hundred million that they paid for it, um, but also, you know, had things gone really badly there, they could be exposed to, to ongoing losses. But you know, the, that hasn't happened in any in any huge way either. Um, and, and what's hard to do is to say, well, where would Delta and indeed its competitors be because you know their customers up for the refinery too? Where would they be had Delta not bought the refinery? You know, obviously fuel costs are, are, are pretty tolerable right now. Um, there's a tolerable crack spread. It's the difference between what the the unrefined crude cost and what jet A at the pump costs. Uh, So, you know, what Delta was concerned about was that um, because refining had become so unprofitable, uh, there were refineries coming offline and they were worried that even if crude oil prices were cheap, the crack spread would be very high and, and, you know, they and everybody else would, would be stuck paying a lot for jet fuel. So. You know, it's one of those things where you can't prove a negative. Um, you know, where would they all be? Where would jet fuel prices um, in this country be if they weren't in control of that supply chain? So, uh, yeah, you know, they're, they're probably still happy that they have it, um, even though, you know, it's hard to say that it was uh, uh, it was a grand slam at this moment as investments go.
0: And one more item about Delta. The airline is talking seriously about buying CS300s. First question, and it's kind of a physics question. You being in Fort Lauderdale, Seth, do you think you'll be able to hear the cheers in Montreal when Bombardier receives this order?
1: <laughs> well, no, but only because it's, it's already gotten so hot here that the windows will be closed.
0: Now, Bombardier has gotten a little momentum with the C-Series. Deltas would be the biggest order yet. Also, Air Baltic expanded its order a bit. And this all comes on top of Air Canada's order. Do you see a trend beginning here?
1: Well, it's all good news, uh, and, and, and this to be clear, you know, first reported by the Wall Street Journal that's, uh, that the Delta is apparently uh, very interested in, in the CS300s. Uh, well, we've learned a few things. They, uh, you know, first of all, apparently we're not bluffing when they when they expressed interest. Um, you know, you never knew for sure before whether it was more of a negotiating tactic, you know, to get Boeing and Airbus to come down in price, you know, for, for uh, this the lower end of of their narrow body. Um, series, you know, to get some, some cheap, you know, 737-700s or, or A319s. But, but Delta rather clearly really is, uh, you know, very interested in, in this in the CS300. Now, clearly, you know, price is, is a part of that. You've got Bombardier, which is, you know, desperate to sell some of these jets, and uh, Delta, which loves dealing with <laughs> with desperate suppliers. You know, there's some other dynamics. I mean, look, Republic still has that that outstanding order for, oh, I think, 40 uh, CS300s with no obvious use for them. Those, you know, rather clearly were supposed to be for Frontier back when Republic owned Frontier. Yeah, you know, Don't forget, you've got Republican bankruptcy. Uh, you've got, you know, Delta, um, you know, making nice with Republic after, uh, you know, having sued the airline for unreliable operations and so forth. Bombardier certainly understanding that there's no realistic way that Republic uh, can take those orders. And, and so there's probably some sort of grand bargain here where, uh, you know, it made sense for everybody for, for Delta to, to take the jets. But look, the bottom line is that once they start flying, if they are successful, and if you do have several hundred of them out there then, including at these you know rather reputable operators like Swiss, uh, in, in its case, the CS300s, uh, and for the, CS3, uh, the CS100s for Swiss, CS300s for uh, Delta and Air Canada, but, uh, there's certainly a scenario where a decade from now, we're talking about, you know, this, this moment, early 2000, early 2016, as, as the moment when, when the tide turned for, uh, Bombardier and then
0: the C-Series became a successful project. Is the three, is the 300 really the best fit for Delta?
1: Well, you know, again, with Delta, it's, it's always at what price? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it look, it has, uh, it has a lot of narrow bodies that it will eventually need to, uh, to replace, you know, the, md-88s and so forth and and so uh so sure you know i mean here's here's a uh a state-of-the-art jet that there's uh you know there although they're they're not out there flying in revenue service yet um there's every reason to think that 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 it'll be a good performer and if delta has gotten that jet at you know at at just an, an unheard of price then sure, it, it 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 will make sense. You know, Delta also because it holds its aircraft for so long, it's probably not thinking primarily about residual value, and that would be a a a concern here. You know, so especially like for leasing companies when they're looking at purchasing aircraft, they're thinking, you know, is this something I can I could sell if I want to? You know, Delta's probably whatever it buys it's gonna operate for for in you know, all likelihood for for decades. You know, if the plane is a good performer for Delta then, uh, then Delta is going to see that as, as a winner. And again, you know, by the time you get a decade or two out, maybe there will be enough of these in the world uh, that it will be a, a, a relatively uh, valuable asset. That, that would be the, I mean, aside from the fact that it's, that it's just unproven at the moment, that would be the other concern about buying a plane that there's not very many of in the world, um, that, it, that it's just not as liquid an asset. But if there's one airline that doesn't care about that, it's Delta.
0: Normally we do this at the end of the show, but uh, let's close the Delta portion here with a plug of your book, Glory Lost and Found, How Delta Climbed from Despair to Dominance in the Post-9-11 Era. Seth, what's been the reaction to the book so far?
1: It's It's been great. Uh, you know, a, a customer actually sent us a, a clip of a review in the Fola de Sao Paulo newspaper. It's one of the biggest newspapers in Brazil from this past weekend. I hadn't seen it. Uh, yeah. So here you had this this Portuguese language, uh, very prominent newspaper reviewing an English language book. We haven't even translated it yet. Uh, it was very comprehensive, very positive review. And to speak nothing of, of uh, you know, some of the nice words we've heard about the book in the English speaking world. So, yeah, we've been we've been pleased gosh uh I, I think I've said this to you before Jason but um if, if I had known how much work it would take I don't know that I don't know that we would have done it um but I guess I'm glad I didn't know because it would have been a shame not to do it it's done well commercially and it's just you know made us feel really good about being able to to you know, just to contribute some knowledge to the airline world and so uh yeah all very uh, gratifying and, and hopefully just the uh, beginning of better things to come
0: posterity. All right, let's switch gears and talk about TAP's tangled web. TAP Portugal reported a net loss for 2015. Wasn't terrible, just $110 million, but business is certainly not good there and that could impact some other airlines as well. It could indeed. And, and to be
1: clear, you know, losing money at this moment in time, you know, it's, it's, uh, If you're not going to make money now, you know, with fuel prices where they are, when are you going to make money? Let's be clear. They have some awful exposure, you know, a lot of exposure to commodity markets in Africa. Of course, a lot of exposure uh, to to Brazil in particular, um, which is the worst off of of the uh, poorly performing Latin American markets. And uh, you're right. You know, there's a uh, there's an investment in TAP, a big investment by Azul. Speaking of Brazil, the Brazilian carrier originally it was it was just, you know, some money from Azul's you know, founder, David Neelman and so forth. But Now it's Azul itself it, invested in TAP and certainly very interested in TAP's success. Look, at other airlines that are invested in Azul, uh United owns a, owns a portion of Azul. HNA Group, the parent of Hainan Airlines, um, which itself is working on having uh, direct shares in Tap. So uh, HNA, even considerably more than United, interested in, in what happens with Tap. You know, Tap's an important member of the Star Alliance. Uh, so yeah, a, lo- a lot of airlines that um, that, that touch it, uh, some more directly than others. Everybody, you know, certainly certainly interested in, in seeing it. Right, its ship because uh, hard to be too optimistic when you can't take advantage of a moment like this, at least in terms of uh, what's happening on the cost side. Although certainly it has some very unfortunate
0: network exposure. Was Azul's investment in Tap another case of awful timing for Azul? Yeah, hard hard to say how that nets out. I,
1: I mean, look, you know, yeah, Tap's not doing well. Azul's not doing well either, rather clearly. Now, Azul did get some benefits out of that. One thing is that TAP is sort of babysitting Azul's, uh, you know, A330s, uh, finding uses for them. Azul it has been rather clear that it, it would not have gotten into that long haul game had it known what kind of environment we'd be in now. You know, so that's been useful. Uh, you know, obviously it'll get some benefits from uh, working with Tap, you know, in terms of traffic feed and, and so forth. And by the time it invested, I mean it was already rather clear what was happening uh, at, at Tap. It wasn't like they were, uh, you know, as opposed to the the wide bodies, for example, where you know the world changed after they decided to go long haul. That wasn't really the case with Tap. I mean, it was already in the situation that it was in, so they could, you know, they could price that appropriately. Um, and so, you know, for the long term, it it could work out. But at the moment, yeah, no question, they own part of. Uh, an asset that is that's not doing all that well
0: in this week's airline weekly we posted our world famous global <laughs> earnings scoreboard for 2015 this is a fan favorite if you haven't seen it before the chart includes most of the world's airlines ranked by revenues and profitability we have four columns including revenues net profit operating margin and net margin and of course i thought this chart would make for a great dun lightning round <sighs> It's going to work like this. I'll pull an airline and its ranking off the chart, and Seth, you provide some intelligent comment, Mm. preferably in a lightning-fast tempo. Here we go. In the revenue column, number one was American at $40,990,000,000. Number two was Delta at $40,704,000,000, just a fraction of a difference.
1: Yeah, Delta nipping at American's heels. Interesting, because uh, as recently as two years ago, uh, Delta was actually number three. Uh, behind both United and American. Delta having now leapt over not only United, but uh, really coming within striking distance of America. Now, look, the, the differentials in revenues are small enough that what everybody's most interested in is uh, profitability, not whether you have a, a couple hundred million uh, more or less in revenue than somebody else. But obviously, uh, re- revenues are half the equations <laughs> of getting to the profitability. And so, uh, you know, certainly impressive. Uh, and Delta, by the way, with those revenue trends that we discussed earlier, might surpass American uh, this year and actually become the uh, the biggest airline uh, in in the entire world as it uh, as it was momentarily after it merged with Northwest and before uh,
0: the other mergers happened the United Continental and American U.S. Airways. Staying in the revenue column, number three was Lufthansa, number five was Air France KLM, and number six was IAG.
1: Yeah, noteworthy, uh, Lufthansa uh, now now above United as well. United actually at, at number four. You know, not too many years ago, Lufthansa was the biggest airline company in the world. Uh, you know, partly because it does have a lot of non airline businesses that the U.S. airlines don't tend to have. Um, But also, you know, that was just before the U.S. airline consolidation, you know, after Lufthansa had had bought Swiss and bought Austrian and so forth. And before Delta merged with Northwest and the rest of it, Lufthansa was the largest in the world. Still, obviously, rather large. And and, uh, there you mentioned the other two. So. uh, So, yeah, the the top six airline companies in the world are all U.S. and European airline uh, companies, you know, American, Delta, Lufthansa, United, Air France, KLM and IAG, in that order, IAG, of course, the parents of British Airways, Iberia, whaling and most recently, Air Lingus.
0: At the bottom of the revenue list was Viva Aerobus at just 276 million revenue. Yeah, the bottom
1: of our list, uh, at least. That's not to say that there aren't smaller airlines in the world um, with less revenue. There, there, of course, are. But Viva Aerobus, more importantly, not at the bottom of the profitability list. that's uh, you know, that ultra low cost Mexican airline doing quite well and uh, you know firmly within the top half of airlines world worldwide in terms of its its operating and net margins uh, doing impressively well
0: in a double digit operating yeah, margin yeah
1: yeah so uh, so so they'll take that you can you can put them at the bottom of the revenue list and uh, and they'll take their their profitability uh, as as the more important feather in their cap
0: okay moving to everybody's favorite column operating margin number one was Allegiant at twenty nine percent.
1: Yep. It's uh, not the only way to make money in the airline industry, you know, being an ultra low cost carrier. But certainly these airlines are, are disproportionately uh, successful. Uh, you know, number two, Spirit. Uh, number
0: four, I'm looking at the list, Ryanair. Uh, you know, the, these are all airlines that do rather well. Number six, Hainan Airlines, 20% operating margin. Yeah, uh, that's one of those airlines within the HNA group. Some of the other airlines within that group, uh,
1: you know, certainly struggle more than than uh, than Hainan Airlines itself, the flagship carrier. But it's doing very, very well. Uh, you know, it's been the star among Chinese airlines for uh, for several years now. Holding up very well so far. Uh, that'll be a very interesting thing to watch this year. You know, we all know what's going on in, in China's economy. Uh, so far, air travel demand has held up rather well. Uh, you know, the broader consumer economy has held up rather well in light of a lot of what's happening in China. But you know, can you still have an airline there, an intercontinental carrier no less, you know, flying some of those high-risk long-haul routes? Continue to put up. Margins like the one you just said, twenty percent,
0: we'll get the answer here uh, in, in the coming quarters. Number seven was JetBlue at nineteen percent for the year. Yeah, bag fees. <laughs> Number uh, fifteen, bundle here air-
1: bundle. And, and by the way, they'll continue. You know, unbundle the product and 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 densify the cabin. I mean, they've worked for airlines everywhere. They've done the unbundling. I mean, not as aggressively as some airlines, but they're charging for bags that has helped, and they're about to be densifying the cabins. And you know, don't be surprised if
0: if if they continue to. Uh, Climb up the rankings as they do that. Congratulations, JetBlue. You're in the top ten. <laughs> Number fifteen was Air Arabia at 15% margin for the year. Yeah, uh,
1: impressive considering what's what's going on in that region. You know, just the uh, all the oil revenue evaporating. You know, certainly they're a short haul narrow body carrier, so uh, um, you know a lot of it's just lower risk flying. But yeah, you know when you consider some of what they do, you have to be rather deft to adjust to a lot of the turmoil in the region. You have to adjust your network a lot um, and
0: keep up a margin like that 15% margin. So uh, it's been nice work by, by them. Number 26, which is still in the top half, Air Asia 12% margin.
1: Yeah, they were uh, at one point, you know, one of the real standouts in the world. Um, but they're in a region where you have, well, what most airlines complain is excess capacity. Of course, they all participate in it, but you know, still, still impressive. But yeah, no longer. The uh, the standout that it once was, this amid questions of accounting irregularities and the rest of it. And and perhaps, you know, founders taking the, the airline private, you know, thinking that, it, that that's the best deal out there for them. If the
0: shares are worth so much less than they think the airline is worth. Now, moving well into the bottom half, Turkish Airlines, just 6% margin.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean that's that's a story of uh, the global economy it's a story of certainly what's going on in turkey it's a story of a, a hyper growth airline you know that you know for a while seemed uh, that it could continue growing rapidly and profitably you know perhaps running up against the wall here so uh, definitely one to watch going forward considering everything facing them you, you know the the What's going on in Turkey? I mean, it's 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 not just you know the instability there, but certainly you know Turkey used to be a, a a key destination for Russians who now have less spending power to to vacation abroad. So even if they wanted to go to Turkey, despite the instability there, many of them just can't afford to to do so. So just kind of a lot going on at once for an airline that's that's still growing very rapidly. Pegasus just five percent margin. Yeah, and they were one that uh, for a while there was was really climbing up the rankings in terms of profitability by all accounts and appearances, the well-managed um, aggressive low cost carrier. But yeah, I mean, when, uh, you know, f- for them, even more than for Turkish airlines, at least Turkish airlines, the, the, the sixth freedom business, you know, u- using Istanbul as a, as a hub to connect other distant lands, not so directly impacted by the instability in Turkey. Uh, Pegasus is, is more exposed to that. Um, although they have a big domestic business and, you know, that's, you you know, where you get uh, sort of short haul business travel and, and, uh, you know, visiting friends and relatives and so forth, um, that may be a little bit less exposed than some of the international business. Uh, They're running up against it. They're facing more competition at their main hub airport, which is Istanbul's alternative airport, Sabiha Gokhin, you know, from Turkish Airlines and others. And uh, yeah, so another one to watch because, uh, you know, if they're running out of steam with all of the ambitions that they have, you know, they're... They're gonna have to get their hands around those
0: declining margins. And at a negative five percent, fourth from the bottom, Air Berlin, Oof, one of the Etihad collection
1: of, of, uh, of airlines that aren't doing so well. You know, if you look at sort of their big uh, airline investments, yeah, you mentioned them. Here's uh, you know Virgin Australia, Jet Airways, all within over oh, the bottom. 18 or so out of out of 72 carriers and all within the bottom quartile air Berlin is is uh you know is is alive only on Etihad cash um, you know airline with negative equity really trying to uh to find its its way in the world yeah if you're putting up margin that poorly with uh you know fuel costs as low as they are and and, and the rest of it with most airlines in the world profiting I mean I mentioned 72 airlines I'm looking at the list um, only seven in the red, and that Jason probably the biggest story of all here. Just uh, as recently as last year, there were 18 in the red on an operating basis. I'm talking um, now down to just seven. So uh, to lose money at all right now is is tough to do, and Air Berlin's doing it
0: and not losing just a little money, negative five percent as you said. And in last place, TransAsia, negative 24 percent.
1: Yeah, an airline that was not doing very well even before not one but uh, two fatal crashes. Uh, that's just a lot to absorb for a uh, for a smallish airline, TransAsia, the third largest airline in Taiwan, but much much smaller than the than the two global carriers that everybody knows, uh, China Airlines and EVA Airways. Uh, yeah, so it's not um, not doing well at all.
0: Excellent work, Seth. Again, you have prevailed over the lightning round. And That means <laughs> it's time for us to bolt. Uh, we'll be back next week with more lousy puns and maybe a little airline <laughs> knowledge too until then thanks for joining us <laughs> two lightning rounds in two weeks
1: let's not go for three